If you don't mind, we're going to just pray one last time this morning. Um, just really quick, though, if you want to turn and if you have your Bibles with you this morning, just turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and you can leave it there for a while. I'll let you know when we're, we'll get into that. But uh, I was asked to give my testimony this morning to kind of let, uh, let you know a little bit more about me. Um, I'm not new to the body of Christ, but I am new to this body of Christ. Lauren and I have been here since right before Christmas, and uh, we've loved it ever since the first time. I mean, there's so many of you that have just welcomed us with open arms. Um, even on Christmas, was it Christmas Day or Eve that morning, Christmas morning that we had service? And and uh, Pastor Ricky and Asa sat there for an hour, and I'm thinking, they've got to want to go home and spend time with their families. It's Christmas, and they just kept talking, and that was just the coolest yeah. thing. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told in uh, prior stuff that Lauren and I are called stayers. Uh, we're the ones that don't leave. So... Um, <laughs> If you invite us over, you have to tell us that there's a, there's a curfew. So, uh, but anyway, so hopefully you'll learn a bit, little bit more about not just myself but Lauren today a little bit, and then um, but hopefully the word of God will be preached. So let's just um, ask Him to just bless our time. So, Father God, we just once again want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to freely come to you this morning and be able to worship you and to hear your word. I pray, Father, that. Um, that your word would be spoken today, Lord, that my life is not mine, it's yours, and it's your testimony, Lord. And so, Father, I just pray that you would be glorified this morning on what you've done and the miraculous things you've done through my life and through our marriage. And uh, just thank you, Lord, that, that uh, you do this with so, so many people. So we just thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy that you pour out on us. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I am the youngest of three siblings. Um, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, but it was just religion. Uh, we were a spiritually broken family. Uh, while my parents loved us, uh, they did so in the best way they knew how while dealing with um, alcoholism, codependency, um, pride, and, and other generational sin that they struggled with. And that, of course, put pressures on us as kids growing up in that environment. What made it worse for us kids, though, is that we were told that our family problems were our problems. Our friends weren't allowed to know about those problems. Our church family wasn't allowed to know about those problems. So we were to suffer in silence and publicly smile. I learned at a young age how to walk the walk and talk the talk, which taught me that not everybody is as they seem. I tricked so many people growing up and not even on purpose. Um, I would memorize my prayers, say please and thank you, attend Sunday school, and go to the church retreats. I was a good Catholic boy, but I for sure was not a Christian. My actions were done to stay out of trouble or to uh, get gratification from other people. It was definitely was not to honor God. So no surprise, um, since I got recognition for, uh, from others for being good, but not being who I really was on the inside, I struggled with pride. For, for all the accolade, accolades I got, but also I struggled with low self-esteem since the people were, you know, complimenting the person who wasn't me, just the outside person, while I was hiding the real me on the inside. In fact, up until recent years, I still struggled with this kind of pride because I would start out my testimony with people by talking about how my testimony is not as impressive as the testimony of a converted drug addict or converted murderer. <laughs> As if to say that, my, that God's work in my life wasn't as miraculous, right? Um, which essentially 
is robbing God of his glory, right? So I spent my childhood and young adult years learning I could be anything to anybody since nobody really knew who I was. The problem was I knew if I could do that, everybody else could too. So if I fall in love with someone, how do I know if I'm falling in love with the real person? I learned to break hearts before they broke mine. I wanted something that was real and not fake, but how could I risk letting somebody else in? How could I, how could I handle being rejected? I remember getting hurt by a girlfriend I thought I was going to marry. She broke off the relationship and it scared me to death because if she reject, rejected the good version of me, who would ever accept the real version of me? During this stage in my life, college and the years after, I believed there was a God that was never really an issue for me. He just felt far away and angry all the time. I was raised thinking that God will strike you down with lightning if you sin. You see, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and they teach a works-based salvation. So even though Jesus died for your sins, you still had to work for part of your salvation. And then you had to keep working to keep God happy so he doesn't strike you down. It was literally exhausting. Well, guess what? While in an unhealthy relationship with a girlfriend at the time, one evening we were together, and I was totally afraid the entire night that God was going to send lightning through the roof. Well, the date came to an end, and I was still alive. Well, this meant that either God doesn't punish sins, or maybe God doesn't really exist. I was a free man. At least that's what I told myself, and so I lived that way for a time. The problem was, is even though the Roman Catholic Church does teach a false gospel, and they do, they did teach me a few good things. They did teach me the Ten Commandments, although they kind of messed those up too. If you look at the Ten Commandments of the Roman Catholic Church, they're missing the Second Commandment. Uh, about making idols. And there's a reason for that if you go to a Catholic church. Um, but they also taught a reverence for God. So even though I would tell myself that there wasn't a God, I knew deep down there was. That was just something I always had embedded in me. But even if they hadn't taught the Ten Commandments, right, I would still know right from wrong, as we all do, because Romans chapter 2 tells us, for when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. But even though I knew the law, I lived my life by my terms in religious guilt not leading to salvation. There was no repentance, just guilt and a fear of an angry and wrathful God. So now what? I know there's a God. I know my life falls short of God's law. I'm still in my 20s. I just lost a friend in his 20s to a knee surgery, just this random death. And so I'm not, I know I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, and I was afraid of dying. Well, about this time, my friend Chris, same name, had courageously left the Catholic Church and was attending a Christian church and Bible study. And he was suddenly much happier. He talked about God with, like, actual happiness. We didn't experience that growing up. And so I wanted to check this out, and so he invited me to his Bible study. And um, sure enough, men and women are gathered around a table talking about God, laughing together, crying together, showing real affection for God. And I was just, I mean, I was blown away. So, and, and the cool thing was when I asked a question during the Bible study about who God is or why God allows certain things to happen, instead of being told that's dogma, which in the Catholic Church is a word that they uh, use for, uh, you have to have blind faith. You're not allowed to question certain things. Usually it comes from the quote-unquote infallible Pope where he makes some sort of new truth and you're not allowed to question it, even if it seems to contradict Scripture. But in this case, we're in a Bible study, and instead of them telling me I'm not allowed to ask that, they say, good question, let's look in the Scripture for some answer. That was a whole new world to me. So I got on fire for the Lord. 
though still not saved, I too got courageous and went to Catholic church to keep my mom happy, so I was kind of courageous. But then after the Catholic church, I'd run up the street to the Christian church up the street. And sometimes I'd even stay for two services. So, new to the evangelical world, though, I have to admit, I was new to this. Uh, I was new to people raising their hands during worship service. And so, I distinctly remember looking around the church at these people, not knowing what they're doing, going, okay, holy rollers, we all see you. Go ahead and put your hands down now. It's like, we got this. Everybody sees you. But anyway, so I was a sponge, just soaking it up and learning there's a whole other side to God. He's a God that desires a relationship with us, to, to, for us to know him and be known by him, rather than just being our judge and executioner, right? I heard biblical truth over and over, and it slowly just kept rewiring bad teachings and beliefs I had. I had learned that I was, just as I suspected, a sinner and fall short of the glory of God, and no one seeks after God, according to Romans 3, which is true. I knew about God, but wanted nothing to do with him. My best works are like filthy rags, according to Isaiah, which is true, because everything I did was for my own benefit, not to glorify God. So that God is, so then I also learned that God is sovereign, that he's the creator of the universe, that he is perfect, holy, just, and the only being deserving of all glory and honor, and must, because of his holy and perfect nature, judge sin and condemn the offender. So works won't get me out of hell, and my life decisions have definitely bought me a one-way ticket there. So what do I do? Well, eventually, I was led to say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into my heart, which is not found in the Bible and not part of the gospel. Now, let me stay, stop here for a minute. I'm going to be up front and admit that I'm not a fan of the sinner's prayer, and you'll see why shortly. But for those of you who do use it, if you lead someone to say the sinner's prayer and you clearly explain that it is an outward expression of what is happening in their heart and mind and the person and work of Jesus Christ is clearly explained as well as what it is you are submitting yourself to through faith, then it's not wrong. But if you are sharing the gospel and you lead someone in this prayer and you fail to explain the prayer is not the source of salvation, and you fail to explain that it is through a living faith of repentance, surrendering your life to the lordship of Christ, then you have shared a false gospel, and Paul warns the Galatians that anyone who preaches any other gospel be accursed. Now, I personally believe that not enough Christians in the world today take that curse seriously. We have chiseled the gospel down to a shadow and skeleton of what it is. We have oversimplified it so it fits on a challenge coin so we can express the gospel in 90 seconds or less and the off chance that we go skydiving with our friend and neither of our chutes open, we have one last quick chance to get the gospel in. Nowhere in scripture do you see a countdown clock and some disciple wiping sweat from his brow, nervous that he's going to get the gospel in before the buzzer goes off. The gospel is too important. We need to know our scripture. We need to know the gospel and we need to take our time. If God is moving in that moment, then it will happen. Regarding the sinner's prayer, Paul Harrison Chitwood, an American Baptist minister and recent president of the International Mission Board, in his doctoral dissertation on the history of the sinner's prayer, provides strong evidence that the sinner's prayer only originated in the early 20th century. It became popular among 20th century evangelists. It's a relatively brand new concept. He goes on to say in his dissertation, the pros and cons for it, trying to be as unbiased as possible in his dissertation, but eventually it leads us to know that he, he, he sides on not actually using the sinner's prayer and goes into detail. 
And there's a lot of reasons out there for why you shouldn't use the sinner's prayer because it's been abused. For example, um, one of the reasons that people believe it was used is because it's an easy way to uh, measure success during evangelism events, right? You just count the number of people that you got to say the sinner's prayer, and then you can go back to your financial donors and let them know how successful the event was. Almost seems like there's an ulterior motive there, right? The more people you get to say the sinner's prayer, the more money you get to keep your evangelism going. It's also been used so that people who are questioning their salvation, instead of going to a biblical answer, are able to say, well, of course you're a Christian. You said the sinner's prayer. Just look at the date that you wrote down in the beginning of your Bible. You're covered. You're good. Neither of which is evidenced in the Bible. Now, more important than knowing the date of your conversion is knowing that you are, in fact, converted, that you have salvation. I heard a pastor say once, if you absolutely need to have a date, you need to know a date, just remember 33 AD. I kind of like that, personally. The problem with the sinner's prayer, the problem with the sinner's prayer is that whether intentional or not, even if the gospel is presented correctly, a person potentially is led to believe that their salvation rests in, in the sincerity of the prayer rather than in the work and person of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what happened to me. Brothers and sisters, I spent the next several years thinking I was saved, then not thinking I was saved, and thinking I was saved again, all because I was trying to figure out how every time I sinned, these potentially empty, empty words could save me. How could potentially empty words save me from the wrath of God? It was literally emotional hell. A poor presentation of the gospel is so, so dangerous. There are many people around the world that are scared about their salvation because they said this prayer and they feel empty. They don't have any meat to back that up. Or worse yet, they think they're saved because they said the sinner's prayer, but they're not actually saved. Imagine going through life thinking you're saved, and now you stand in front of the judge on Judgment Day, and you learn this whole new reality. This is a serious pandemic in the modern Christian church. Many church denominations actually are including training now in their annual conventions on how to combat this movement of sharing a stripped-down gospel and poor use of the sinner's prayer. In fact, I heard a sermon recently from a missions pastor that the, third world, that the churches in the third world countries are starting to beg the mission organizations not to send American missionaries anymore because they, being the Christian missionaries, don't actually understand what real Christian life looks like. That's scary. Another false presentation of the gospel is not showing that we are in, actually in need of a savior. By not driving home the truth that we are wretched and dead in our trespasses, many of us, and I used to do this as well, try to soften the hard-to-hear parts of the gospel because we think it'll be received easier, which demonstrates a weak understanding of Scripture. To think if we soften the hard-to-hear part or only talk about God's love, that there's a better chance the person will be saved, completely contradicts Scripture. To think we know a better version of the gospel than what God gives us through his word is literally insanity. Now, hopefully you're already turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you go to verse 18, we're going to read verses 18 through 25. And Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jesus, uh, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, this is the important part. Well, it's all important, but this is the, the key point. 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. It is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't matter how pretty you try to make the gospel to those who are perishing. They're not going to believe it. Well, then why share the gospel? Well, first of all, because our Savior commands us to, and not just preachers and evangelists, but all disciples. But secondly, it tells us right here in the passage why we should share the gospel. But to those whom God calls. Does God call everybody? No, no, he doesn't. But to those whom God calls, the gospel of Christ is the power of God. God opens the heart of those whom he calls in order that they can receive the gospel, and it is no longer a stumbling block or foolishness to them. But to those whom he does not call, it remains a stumbling block and foolishness. This is how God chose in his good pleasure to bring salvation. This should be a relief to us. We are vessels carrying a life-saving message. Our job is to deliver an accurate message. Beyond that, it's up to God's good pleasure. We don't carry the burden of convincing someone of the gospel. That is not our calling. We share the true gospel and, yes, answer questions they might have and um, take them through Scripture if they allow us so that the two-edged sword can convict them. But still, that's God through the Scripture, not us. This makes sharing the gospel easier because we don't have to take rejections personally. It's not us they're rejecting. Unless, unless you share a false gospel, then that's your gospel, not God's, and they're rejecting you. But if that's taking place, then you should be more concerned with Paul's warning in Galatians rather than feeling rejected. But part of the true gospel is sharing that we are wretched people, destined for hell because we chose the sins of the world and ourselves over God. And that can be scary and uncomfortable to do, and I get that. I do. We just need to have the depth of faith and courage to share the one true gospel. Otherwise, we dishonor God and bring shame and sin upon ourselves. We need to be careful not to rob God of his glory. In speaking about both Jews and Gentiles, all people, Paul in Romans 9 makes it clear that God makes some vessels of wrath to make known his power and some vessels of mercy to make known the riches of his glory. If we only share half the gospel, speaking only to God's love, then the sinner doesn't really understand the need for a savior, and we rob God of his glory in that broken gospel message. The sinner, and by the way, if we use the word sin when sharing the gospel, we should probably define what sin is. Many people these days don't know what that even means. But the sinner must understand they will go to hell because God is holy and just. And further, through his righteous actions of sending sinners, vessels of wrath, to hell, he gets all glory and honor because he is righteous and just to do exactly that. A lot of people don't like hearing that, but that is clearly what the Bible teaches. People always criticize saying a good God wouldn't send good people to hell, to which the Christians should respond, show me a good person. They don't exist. This is where the law the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans is so absolutely crucial to demonstrating that we all fall short of God's holy and perfect standard. And equally, when God demonstrates his love through an outpouring of mercy and grace upon a wicked and wretched sinner that we are, people, of, people which are vessels of mercy in this case, we also receive glory and honor for his demonstration of mercy, which he's not required to do by the very definition of mercy. So both vessels made for wrath and vessels made for mercy are both completely within his perfect divine nature and will to do. And he demonstrates his divine attributes such as sovereignty, holiness, 
righteousness, immutability, grace, and love through his actions, all to his glory and honor. The culture of the world pressures us and makes it uncomfortable for us to share the sinner's bad news, their sin nature. But that's what we are called to do. Those moments when we faithfully share the one true gospel are exactly the opportunities where we can show the world that we stand for Jesus and not the world. We don't give in to the fear. We claim the truth of the scriptures that there's only one God and one Savior and one way to eternal life. No one gets offended by saying Jesus loves you. That's why nobody gets offended when we share a poor explanation of John 3.16 by using it as a one-sentence version of the gospel. Or we say, you want to go to heaven, right? Just say this prayer and you get eternal life. I've even heard of teachers offering candy to get kids to say the sinner's prayer. This is truly a disgrace, and it's so ungodly. It's when we say that you are a sinner whose throat is an open grave, and you're headed to hell, and Jesus is the only truth, the only hope, and the only way to life. That's when we offend people. The exclusivity of Christ, the Christian doctrine that our hope stands on, infuriates the unregenerated mind. It is a stumbling block to them. It's foolishness to them. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One quick uh, homework assignment if you want to do this, uh, just to see how much of a sin nature we still have, even as Christians. Go home today, and please come back to me and let me know what your thoughts are on this. Go home today and look at John 3.16, and then compare it to John 3.36. Same author, same chapter. Neither one of those, neither one of those preach the whole gospel. They preach a piece of the gospel. They give a 30,000-foot view of one part of the gospel. But nobody knows John 3.36. Everybody knows John 3.16. It's on our walls. But how come John 3.16 is so popular, but not John 3.36? And see if that teaches you anything about our human sin nature that we still struggle with, even as Christians. And I honestly would like to hear back from you, and then I'll tell you my opinion, and I'll see if you're wrong. So, <laughs> so back to my story. God did eventually clarify the gospel for me, and I drive home from work one night. The full gospel was laid before me. Scripture I heard and read overwhelmed me. Ephesians 2 telling me that we were separated from a holy and righteous God in sin. Romans 3 saying that our, that our throats are an open grave, as I just mentioned. And Paul goes on to say, venom is on our lips. Our feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fe fear of God in our eyes. Paul is saying we are dead and worthless in our trespasses from head to toe. He covers our whole body and says we're dead in our trespasses, oozing the odor of death and decay. But then Paul, the amazing preacher that he is, after taking us into the sewage to show us what we really are, and then showing us how, he then shows us how amazingly powerful God really is. After pointing out we are disgusting, wretched sinners who enjoy swimming, swimming around in sewage, deserving eternal torment, Paul then says in Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, and I love that part. I love when those two words come together like that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the importance of sharing the bad part, the bad news, without sugarcoating it, so that the good news of the gospel gives God the glory that he deserves? Jesus had to suffer the wrath of God and die a criminal's death so that our sins would be washed away, so that we have life in the resurrected Christ. He deserves all glory and honor forever and ever. 
And then to those whom he called, we respond in faith, as it says in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice how it starts out, though. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not is a Lord or the Lord of some far-off land, that he's my Lord, that I surrender my life and subject myself under his authority. With true faith comes repenting of my sins, meaning I change course, stop living a life of sin, indulging in the world. And with a new heart and a new mind in Christ, I'm disgusted by the sin and those of the world. And out of gratefulness, not as a work, not as a work, but as out of gratefulness, and as a response, as it says in Romans 12, strive to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as an act of spiritual worship. Again, not as a requirement, but in response to the beautiful saving grace of salvation. This is what a true conversion looks like. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We give our lives to him and we serve him. The guiltless becomes the guilty so that I might stand faultless, righteous before the Lord. Jesus poured upon himself the full wrath of God that should have been poured out on me as that just payment for our sins. And now, just as eyeglasses remove the impurity of our poor vision, God looks at us through the lens of Christ and he sees righteousness. Because he sees Christ in us. So as I'm driving home, this truth is flooding my mind, and I just break down crying, and I drive right past my house. And thankfully, it's dark because I drive right past my house to the parking lot in the street up to the, at the park up the street. And as a six-foot-two, well, six-foot-one and a half, but who's counting? As a six-foot-two guy sitting in a little Dodge Neon, and for those of you too young to know what a Dodge Neon is, just think of a two-door Prius. It's real manly. And I sit in this car, and just, and just as... I made fun of all those people before at the church for raising their hands. I sat inside this little neon and looked even more ridiculous as I held my hands only this high, worshiping God and knowingly and peacefully surrendering my life to Christ. Now, I will tell you, I do believe with all honesty that I was saved before that day. I don't believe that was my date of salvation. Um, but I was questioning my salvation during that time. But this time... The gospel made sense, and it was made clear, and that's, so that's why I say I peacefully surrendered my life to Christ. But as you all know, our point of salvation, unfortunately, is not a simultaneous point of pure knowledge or perfection. Sin still has a hold on us, but now instead of it being me against the world, it's Christ in me against the world. And it's awesome. Now, for the sake of time, I will fast forward to meeting my wife, but in the couple of years I'm fast forwarding through, God continued the work that he started in me, as he still does today, and hopefully with all of you. Um, so I meet this beautiful woman, and she enters my life, and we hit it off immediately. Um, we would only go to group hangout events if we knew the other person was going to be there. Um, but like a cheap Hallmark movie, for like three years, our paths just never connected until God's ordained time. And then we did finally start dating. And uh, just over a year later, we got married. But the morning after our wedding, our first morning as husband and wife, our world came crashing in. Unknown to either of us, Lauren had a mess of medical problems, and they started to surface as the emotional highs of dating and wedding planning and the wedding all came to an end. Um, these things that she felt going on in her body started to come to the surface as the emotional highs of romance started to, to settle a little bit. Fear of the unknown took her and manifested itself in, ang in anger, depression, and confusion. 
I, still struggling with pride mixed with simple and basic understandings of biblical truth, reacted with, what did I get myself into? Which turned into, why would God punish me like this? The first couple years of our marriage were filled with fighting, resentment, loneliness, and weekly and almost daily talk of divorce. Um, she loved me, but uh, did not know what was wrong with her and wanted to spare me the pain and suffering. While well, I stopped loving her and just wanted out. It's not what I signed up for. Sure, our vows say in sickness and in health, but not if it happens in the first year, right? There's got to be some sort of warranty on this thing. As a Christian, though admittedly not a good one, I have to admit this, that I performed the most in-depth Bible study for the permissible reasons for divorce. And then I proceeded to do a huge Bible study on the definition of the word unfaithfulness, trying to find some way out of this prison that I found myself in. But after months, I begrudgingly conceded to the truth that what I had hoped to find wasn't in there. And as the godly man that I was, I say sarcastically, I accepted that this was going to be my life. And in no surprise, with that attitude, our marriage continued in turmoil for a couple years, still, still attending church, and I was even still leading a men's Bible study, which I should never have been allowed to do. Until one Christmas Eve morning, while visiting my parents, after spending the night before laying in bed in my sister's old bedroom, talking about divorce, because that's a nice Christmas thing to talk about, Lauren woke up very sick, and we had to go to the emergency room on Christmas Eve morning. And while waiting to see the doctor, Lauren had to use the restroom, so I had to get her a wheelchair because she was too weak to actually walk. So now that we're in the restroom, she's crying from the physical pain, but now as she has to, be, has to strip down to use the restroom, the tears start flooding down her face as the embarrassment and humiliation starts to set in of having to be exposed and vulnerable in front of a man that she knows doesn't love her. And as she is sitting there looking at me crying, she starts apologizing to me. She starts apologizing to me. But God, I love those words, but God in his mercy at his appointed time, he came rushing over me in that moment. And the best way I can explain this to you, this is the best way, this is not what happened, is that my mind went black as night and in bold, bright, white letters, God just said, this is my daughter whom I gave to you. You are to love her. This is my daughter whom I gave to you. You are to love her. Brothers and sisters, I am not claiming that I heard the audible voice of God, just to clarify. And I'm glad I didn't, because from what I know in Scripture, I would have been face down, and my face and lips would have been kissing that disgusting bathroom floor. No, it was not the audible voice of God, but it was a clear message that shook my world, and our marriage, though not becoming perfect overnight, did get better right away. Our marriage was transformed. My attitude towards life and towards my wife changed, I started to learn to become the godly husband I was called to be, selfless, service-oriented, to lead, support, and build up my wife. And it bled over into other areas of my life as well, breaking down the walls of pride that I had. And as I learned to love her, this is the thing about God that I love so much, and it's our relationship with him as well. As I learned to love her out of obedience, God regrew my affection for her which made it easier to love her. And so in response, God grew my affection for her even more. Now, Lauren uh, did not know what happened in that emergency room bathroom for several years because I didn't tell her. But she did recognize a huge change in me without knowing why. As our marriage slowly got better and better, though it's still a lot of work, we both started growing in our faith and a once utterly decimated marriage was made, made new. And our love for each other grew to a level that I honestly didn't even know was possible as a young man. It wasn't like she got healthy, though. It wasn't like she got healthier, so then in my flesh I was able to love her. No, she actually ended up getting more health problems down the road. She didn't change. God didn't change. God changed me. Now, here's the really cool part. 
less than two years later, we're standing in line at a grocery store, and this woman keeps looking at us. And finally, she turns around with a smile on her face. She looks at us and says, you must be newlyweds. And uh, that was, I don't even remember if we responded to her. I don't know if we just smiled or not, but I just remember thinking, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew. It was as if God looked at, uh, looked at us that day and he said, see what I can do? You see what I can do? I make dead, dead things come back to life. Since that day, we have both grown closer to God and to each other, and, we has, and he has taken us on an amazing journey all to his glory and, and obviously to our benefit as he shapes us more into his image. But it's been an awesome road. But now as I start to um, close, I do want to ask one more thing. I've asked that you make sure you know your scriptures, that you dig into the word, that you know how to share the one true gospel. But I have one more request from you today. May I implore you not to affirm someone who's questioning their salvation. Just as I was, even if you think without a doubt they are saved, they might not be. Comments like, of course you're saved, don't be silly, or, well, you said the sinner's prayer, right? Well, then you're saved. Just look in the front of your Bible, right? These are all dangerous and unbiblical responses. It very well could be true that they are saved, but maybe not. But the Holy Spirit could be trying to convict them, and you're getting in the way of the Holy Spirit, and that is not a good place to be. Instead, try saying, man, I'm really sorry to hear that, and I appreciate you trusting me with this information. I would be honored to pray with you and walk through Scripture with you. And I'd be honored to do that with you until God provides the answer. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? Someone in church right now, and maybe, honestly, maybe even in our church, could be feeling very alone because they're questioning their salvation. But because they look the part and talk the talk, everyone keeps affirming their faith. But this is a serious issue, and for the Christian, it's the most serious issue. It may not be because they heard a false gospel. That may not be the reason. It could just be they're struggling and need biblical discipleship. They very well could be saved, but the anguish and fear of uncertainty is horrible, and our false affirmation, while good-intentioned, could be deadly to their walk and to their joy in the Lord. Instead, walk alongside them, search the scriptures together, pray together, and wait for the Lord to bring the assurance, because no other assurance is going to bring lasting peace to someone who's struggling. When someone has assurance of salvation, they will have immeasurable joy and peace. We should be helping make sure every believer gets to experience that. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 72 disciples to go and share the gospel. And they're coming back and they're full of joy because of all the things that they were doing. And, he, and, and they come back saying, Lord, even the demons are subjects to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice and you have the power to perform miracles. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you know where you are going, that you have assurance of salvation. And I'll end with this. I love Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I believe with everything in Scripture, there's layers and layers and layers upon layers to this. But I know who sits at the right hand of the Father, and I know there are riches forevermore in Christ my King. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, just thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. 
that I can call you king and I can call you father. Thank you, Lord, that you counted me among your sheep, Lord. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that we would spend some time today just thinking about who you are, about your attributes, about who we are in Christ and who we were before we knew you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that beautiful gift. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us a renewed love for you that causes us to want to express that love outward. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, allow your peace to go out on everyone today as we leave. And just pray, Lord, that you would be with us and strengthen us and encourage us to be bold for your name, to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.